The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Father, we thank you for the God that you are. Lord, we thank you that you sit on the throne of heaven and that the shields of the armies of the earth belong to you. Lord, that we know that you are in control and that we have nothing to fear. And uh, Lord, I pray that as we look to your word this evening, we look to it remembering that it is the all-powerful God that wrote it and that wrote it for our good and for your glory. And so we'd submit ourselves to it, Lord, and that we'd um, be willing to, to change what we must um, so that our lives reflect the fact that we believe in heaven, that we believe that this earth is not everything that there is. I pray that we leave this place with our mind and our hearts um, set on you and on set, set on eternity. We love you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been in the book of First Peter now for one week. Um, been in Peter's life for about seven or eight months before that. And looking very forward to getting into this book, which is just a wonderful book. When Peter sat down to write this, I hope what we've learned as we've gone through Peter's life, is that he's, he's gained this wealth of experience as Christ discipled him, not only in the three years that he was with Christ, but in the years and years, maybe 30 years before he sat down and penned this letter, that Christ walked with him and discipled him and made him more and more like Christ. And so now Peter sits down, and he sits down as this wonderful example of what a believer can be when they follow Christ with their lives. And he sits down to give all of us, maybe less mature believers, believers that haven't walked with him for so long, all of this wisdom on how it, how it is that someone can live in this life and go through all these difficult circumstances and still hope and rejoice and praise God. And it is a difficult thing. What Peter's telling us to do throughout this entire book, to rejoice in our sufferings, is incredibly difficult. I, I think for many people it's even unfathomable. And yet, here Peter is, after his whole life, now facing prison and death, and knowing that Christ has told him that he would die in the same manner that he died. Knowing this, being able to say that he can rejoice because he has a hope that is so much greater. And so that's what we learn today. If we were to start out this evening and to play a little game of apples to apples, so I think my understanding of how apples to apples work, I don't play games all that often, I think you try and get other people to say a word. So I have to say other words that surround this word, and then I try and get you to say it. Is that how the game works? Yeah, okay. Well, there's a game like that, whether it's apples, apples or not, it doesn't matter. If I was to say the words temporary, transient, fleeting, impermanent, perishable, evanescent, fading, ephemeral, passing, what would I be describing? Okay, life. Good. Do you know what else I'd be describing? Everything. Everything that we see and everything that we touch, everything that exists outside of a few things that the Bible lists as eternal and uncorrupting, everything is fading and temporary and transient and fleeting and perishing. Right? And yet, knowing this, we find ourselves, with many other people, chasing 
our dreams, chasing many times the American dream, knowing full well that we're probably going to never find it, and it's certainly never going to last. And the truth is, I know that this is how we live, and I know that this is how almost we're built, right? We're built to find the next thing that, that we hope is going to make us happy, the next thing that we can cling to that is like our hope of, of some kind of joy that's before us. We want to have that hope. We're built to have a hope, and we're built to try and find it in something. That's all part of our creation. The problem is, this build, this making, to always find joy and always hope for something better, often leads to sin. Now the truth is, it can lead us to to search for truth and to search for God and to go more deeply into what is good and right, but oftentimes we allow it to lead us into the wrong things. And so though we know that everything in this life is transient and fleeting and perishing, we still want to find a little bit more joy in that. Right? Isn't that why all of us look forward to Christmas morning? You get up and you know you're going to get some gifts. Right? Now, come Boxing Day, maybe, maybe New Year's Day, all of the joy that you found in those gifts is long past. Right? I remember as a kid, I, I couldn't go to sleep on Christmas evening. I would, I would literally stay up like as long as I could, and my mom would keep checking because they're trying to do the other thing that parents do in the evening on Christmas. And, and so they're, they're waiting to do this, and I'm like, I'm full of energy. There was one time, it was snowing out, and I, I popped off the screen of my room and jumped outside and ran around the block because I, I knew I couldn't fall asleep, and I was trying to find a way to make myself tired. Because it was so exciting about what's coming next because I had this hope of something that was going to bring me lasting joy. Do you know what? I have no idea what I got for Christmas that year. Or any other year, really, right? But we're always waiting for that next thing, the next big thing. Uh, this week I was watching uh, a greyhound race. And you know greyhounds are the fastest dogs. They can race about 65 kilometers an hour. Do you know what they do? They have this like little mechanical bunny that they stick in front of the greyhounds and then the bunny races around the track, and it's kind of the greyhound that can get to the bunny first that wins, right? I mean, I know there's a finish line, and the, the really sad thing is once that they get to the finish line, they just retract the bunny, and, and really nobody wins. Um, and so but that, that's what it's like, isn't it? It's like we're, we're these greyhounds that are racing around the track, always trying to get to the next thing, because maybe that's going to do it. I saw one race with greyhounds where a real bunny was sitting in the middle of the track, and so this bunny turns around and is facing like these Six dogs chasing at 65 kilometers per hour straight after them. And, and like, he doesn't know that there's a mechanical thing that they're actually chasing after. So he darts out of the way. And the one dog sees the real bunny and chases after the real bunny. And I think we know who won that race. <laughs> it wasn't the bunny. <laughs> it's really sad. I thought that would be funny. And so we, like greyhounds, hop on the track and we, we chase these mechanical lures that never really satisfy and we're going around and around and hoping to be like the first one in line to get the thing that's never even going to make us happy, never going to bring lasting joy. But we are built to search for something and to hope for something. God has created us a desire in this so that we can find something better than all those other things that can be characterized as ultimately vain, ultimately empty. There is one thing that makes sense of this life, 
and it is an eternal hope. It is a hope that there is something that is not temporary, transient, fleeting, impermanent, imperishable, evanescent. It's a hope that is something that is, there's something that's better, that's, that's fulfilling truly and permanently, that's not going to just fade away as soon as we've had it. I love homemade chocolate chip cookies. I love them. But you have to eat so many, and they, 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 they sit in your mouth for such a short period of time. They're just here, and then they're gone. And then they just make me fat. And <laughs> There's nothing good that comes out of it. But there is something that is permanently wonderful and permanently good. It's never fading. It's incorruptible. It's undefiled. It's everlasting. And so Peter writes this book to people who are suffering and in trouble and that are going to experience a lot more suffering and trouble in the future. And he's giving them in these three verses that we'll be in tonight the thing that they can cling to that will help them to get through all of those other things with joy. Even as though that statement sounds impossible, getting through suffering and difficulty and trouble with joy. And yet these three verses do it. And so these three verses are just essential to understanding and living out the whole book. And so I hope we get them this evening. Well, let's start reading in 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll read the first couple of verses again, his introduction, and then go into our text this evening. So 1 Peter 1 verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Peter begins his book saying he is the one who is writing, who is sent and authorized by Jesus Christ, and I'm been sent and authorized by him to write to those of you who are strangers and foreigners in this world. No matter where you're a citizen of, you are a citizen now of heaven and not of this world. So I'm writing to you, and he's writing so that they can experience a peace and a hope that they could never imagine before, and it's found in the grace of Jesus Christ. And so he goes on. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In that statement, Peter gives us his whole goal for everything that follows. The idea of blessing is the idea of adoring. Or, or putting the spotlight on, or looking to, or praising, or lifting up, or exalting. And he's saying, bless God the Father. And all of the rest of it is why you should and how you should. But this is the whole goal and the whole purpose of what, what we're here for and what he's writing for. He wants us to be able to honestly bless God the Father, God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And why? Well, because according to his abundant mercy, he has begotten us again. Remember in John chapter 3, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus? What did he say was necessary for everlasting life? You must be born again. You must be born again. If you're not born again, you're not a candidate for everlasting life. You do not have everlasting life. But those who are born again have eternal life. And he's saying now that it's God the Father who has begotten us again. Who is the us? 
Well, we know who the us is because we understand that it's according to his abundant mercy. If we were deserving of being born again, then mercy wouldn't be involved. See, the idea of mercy is we are not getting what we deserve. Namely, the wrath of God on our heads. And so, the the ones who have been born again are the ones who are deserving of the eternal wrath of God because of our sin. And he's taken those people and he has made them alive again. He's had them spiritually born again. So where they were once dead, now they were alive. Now they can live in relationship with him once again. And so we are born again. And so, first of all, why do we bless God? Why do we praise God? Because according to his abundant mercy, he has brought us again to life. He is, we are his children. We've been born again by God. And then he goes on. He says, it's unto a living hope. So what should us be being born again produce in our lives? We're going to get three things in our text this evening. And the first one is, it should produce a living or a lively hope. What is a lively hope? Because he could have just said a hope, right? And I think when we think of a lively hope, it's helpful just to contrast what a dead hope would be, right? What's a dead hope? Well, a hope that really doesn't accomplish anything. It's a hope that's never really thought of. It's never really present. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't make any difference in our lives. And so what a lively or living hope would be is a hope that is, it's sure. It's a hope that we actually believe in. It's a hope that, that maybe bears fruit in our lives. Something that is living should bear fruit. And so this living hope is sure, and it's steadfast, and it's in our lives, and now it's something that we look to constantly, and it bears fruit. That's the difference between a living and a dead hope. And so he said, we've been born again by Christ, and now we have this living hope. And he's going to go on to explain all of that, what that uh, means in just a few minutes. He says, we've been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So why are we so sure of our living hope? Because there's a resurrection of Jesus Christ where we can look back and we can see that Christ died and he rose again. And so because of what he did, we have this sure hope that someday we'll do the same. See, that is what, exactly what 1 Corinthians 15 is all talking about. Why are we so sure that someday we will, be born, we will be raised again? Why can we be so sure of our living hope? Because Christ did it first. So it's a result of his death and resurrection that someday we will die and then be raised again to life. Eternal life. Verse number four. What is the second thing? So if the first thing that being born again produces in our lives is a living hope, the second thing is, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. To an inheritance. The first thing is a living hope. The second thing here is an inheritance. But this inheritance is not like any other inheritance we've ever imagined before. This inheritance is perfect. This inheritance is eternal. Do you know the things that can be described this way? Things in the Bible that are described this way? God. He is everlasting. He is unchanging. He is perfect. Right? He's immutable. The word of God, where the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God will stand forever. The glorified bodies of the saints, 1 Corinthians 15, that we, are incorrupt, we will be raised incorruptible and undefiled. And then here, our eternal inheritance. 
And so we think about all the things around us and we say all the things that, that have to do with things that will perish and corrupt and rust and, and, and fade away and die. And the four things that we find that will never do those things, God, his word, our future eternal bodies, and our inheritance. Isn't that wonderful? That is something to, to really get excited about, I think. We have an eternal inheritance. And, and the word here, reserved, I think it's because we're so excited about the inheritance, we maybe forget that word or we miss the word. But the word reserved means guarded or kept safe. It's not just an inheritance that's like, oh yeah, it's some, there's this massive pile of inheritance that someday you'll get a little piece of. It's, there is a specific inheritance that is yours. And that inheritance is reserved, it's guarded, it's kept safe by God for you. That's special. That's, that's pretty cool. So we have this incredible inheritance. We have this living hope. And verse number five, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So who's a candidate? Who, who's this going to happen to? And what is the third thing that is a result of being born again? Well, it's those who are kept by the power of God through faith unto, the third thing, salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the third thing we find here is we have future salvation. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We find these three ideas all throughout Scripture. If if you're born again, your salvation is not something that that is going to happen one day, but something that, that hasn't happened at all right now. No, you already have everlasting life. But then there's also a sense that, that through this life you're being kept and you're being saved. And someday, ultimately, it will accumulate into a, this is it. This is your salvation day. The day that all of the promises and all of what's happened in your life come to the final fulfillment where salvation truly fully occurs. And that is the salvation day that Peter's talking about here. It's the salvation that will be revealed to us in the future. But it's sure. And do you know why it's sure? Do you know what's great about these promises? That all of these things that Peter is encouraging them to to get, get them through all these tough times, they're not contingent on the person alone. Right? Because he says that you are being kept by the power of God. Now, we might say that verse and say, okay, God is keeping us. What does that mean? It means he is guarding us. Actually, the word is really interesting because it's speaking about um, a, it's a military term referring to a watcher who watches in advance. So it's like a watch person that's standing at a gate and he's looking for trouble. And, and the way I, I picture this in my mind is I said, okay, you have two different types of, of people guarding, right? You have one person that might be sitting in the room with that person, watching the door and saying, okay, I'll stand in front of you. Whatever comes to the door, I'll figure out a way to deal with it, right? But that's not the picture of how God is guarding and watching us. The picture is God is up on the throne and he's watching all around and he sees everything and he's guarding anything that will ever come into our path and he's keeping us through faith. So ensuring that, the, that our faith will never encounter or go through something that it can't handle. That, that our faith will endure. It's a, it's a really it's a difficult paradox for us to even explain because we have faith, and that is true. We must have faith. But we also know that our faith is being kept by God. So God is ensuring that there's, that there's nothing that will 
that will kill the true faith of a true believer. That's a wonderful promise. You say, well, what if in five years from now I just don't believe? What if? Well, the truth is, if it was up to you and you're a human being who is frail and, 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 and full of flaws, then that's possible, but it's not ultimately up to you. Yes, you have faith, but you also have a God who is keeping your faith. He is the God who is watching everything that will ever come into your life, and he is guarding that faith for you. And it's, it's guarding that faith so that that salvation day is secure. So your eternal security doesn't rest on you having really good faith. It rests on the God who is keeping your faith. It doesn't mean you don't, you don't, work, you don't work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You absolutely do. You, you do everything you can to grow in Christ and to learn. And, and when you go through trials, you trust God. And when it's difficult, just keep going back to trust him. But ultimately, we also know that we have a God who is keeping us as we do our best to live for him. It is a wonderful truth here. <clears throat> we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation that is ready. I like that too. It is ready. It's there and it's ready to be revealed to us. It's almost like this anticipation that God is excited to someday be able to reveal this salvation to us in the last time. And so in verse number six, Peter writes, wherein you greatly rejoice. Now, I don't want to get into all of what verse 6 says this evening. The next few verses are wonderful verses. I think they're very helpful. But what I want to do tonight is just ground us firmly in that thought that God has, has made us born again, that he did a work in us, and because of that, we have this living hope, right? this hope that can get us through anything. We have this eternal inheritance that will never fade. That we have this salvation that is ours and it's ready to be revealed to us in the last day. They're wonderful things that should be able to help believers get through so much. And so I want to give you two things that Peter seems to focus on in the beginning of this letter that it truly does set the stage for everything that comes. The first one is the believer's possession. The believer's possession. We have a living hope. A hope that can sustain us through trouble. So, the question to ask yourself tonight is, where do you find yourself? Where are you? How are you doing? How can this living hope help you? Those who are suffering persecution in Asia Minor, that Paul's writing to here, he's saying that they do not need to be dashed down by their troubles. They do not need to be destroyed or overcome. That this living hope can get them through. So where do you find yourself? How can this living hope help you? See, their hope triumphs over death. And so whatever happens in this world, whatever this world can throw at them, there's nothing worse than death. And since they can triumph over death and they have something eternal to look forward to, they can go through anything in this life. And so where are you? Living hope can give the weary soul something to rejoice in. Find yourself tired. Find yourself just wondering what's going on, what this life is all about. Living hope, knowing that eternity is there in store for you, knowing that we have a God who is, who is waiting to reveal 
our salvation at the last time can get you through a great deal of difficulty. Living hope can provide those who doubt peace. If you're a believer in Christ and you've never doubted, you've never doubted, I want to meet you. Because I think at times we've all gone through periods of doubt. I think at, all, at times we've all just, just wondered about this whole thing. And yet, we have this living hope. Our confidence is not based on some superstition. Our confidence is based on the fact that Jesus Christ died, that he was murdered, that he was put in a grave, and three days later they could not find his body. Three days later, his disciples, over 500 at once, told the world that he was risen again. And the same men who once were terrified that they might have to suffer with him are now proclaiming his resurrection and proclaiming that he is the Messiah to all the same people who could have them killed. I mean, the, the resurrection of Christ altered history. It changed everything. And there is no other way of explaining that event other than the fact that a man said he was God, said he would die and rise again, and then actually did it. And so Christ is dead and he's risen again. And so those of us who experience doubt at times can look back to that and say, I can have a living hope. I can be sure. I can be certain. Why? Because of he died and he rose again, and so someday I will too. The believer's possession, we have living hope, we have an eternal inheritance. If we're honest tonight, I think inheritance is something that excites us all a little bit, right? The idea of having some kind of inheritance. Um, I think the best kind of inheritance would be from like a, a, a rel- now I'm saying best kind in, in human terms, outside of the inheritance we're talking about tonight, would be if you, ha- you find out you had like an uncle that you never met before, that died and left you as the only person in his will um, because somehow he knew about you. And so you had a bank account full of money and really no strings attached. That would be a pretty cool inheritance to get. The fact is, in most of the time that people receive inheritance, um, it is bittersweet. And often it's more bitter than it is sweet. Oftentimes an inheritance means someone that meant a lot to you that you loved that you cared for, that, that was involved in your life, and that that person is gone. And that's difficult, right? And so the idea of an inheritance, it's, it's nice, but I think when we think about uh, an inheritance here on earth, we know that, that an inheritance often comes with a great deal of loss. And even when you get the inheritance, what is it? Maybe some money, probably some bills to pay. Maybe an, an old car. I, I mean... Whatever it is, even if it is a wealthy person that you've lost, money is going to, what is it going to do? It's going to buy you more things to take care of, more things that will eventually rust and rust, rust, moth, I'm putting words together, (laughs) more things that will eventually decay, right? And so, it's again, it's this hope there that really never can fulfill like you think it, it should. Like you hope that it will. But it never does because that hope, it's this human kind of hope. It's this temporary hope. And so now he says that believers have an inheritance, but an inheritance like nothing else. An inheritance where the three greatest enemies of the mortal flesh, the enemy of death, the enemy of sin, and the enemy of time. 
that those enemies can't touch because it is incorruptible, undefiled, and everlasting. That's the inheritance that he offers to us. It is untouched by death, unstained by evil, and unimpaired by time. That it will never get worse. That it will never be spent. That that it will never be less glorious than the first time we receive it. That's what heaven is. And so the inheritance we look forward to is, is him and all that he has. What an inheritance. And that's what we have as believers. And this is where I find myself having to fight to make sure I don't just make this inheritance some type of theoretical concept and not a real thing. So what I mean is, there's often times when I think of heaven, I just think of like a good place that's out there someday. I don't often enough make myself think of the realities of heaven. That there is a place called heaven right now. That there is an inheritance that exists right now. That this is actually a real place. That the new heaven and the new earth are just as real as this earth and this sky. This is not just theory, right? This is real. It's going to happen. It's there now, if that makes sense. I mean, we don't... We're not just people who are having these crazy dreams and trying to make them into a future reality. This is a sure and steadfast hope. And so we have an eternal inheritance, an inheritance like nothing else could ever come close to. And finally, the believer has the assurance of future salvation. Why will your faith overcome? Because it's kept by the power of God. Why can you be so sure that someday you'll be with him? Because it's not you, it's him that it depends on. Why is your hope secure? Why can it be living and lively even when you find yourself a whole lot less of a Christian than you ought to be? Even when you find yourself in sin, why, is it a, why can you look to God and know that he still loves you and accepts you? Because it's him and not us. Because it's his death in the first place and it's his keeping our faith that ultimately brings about our future inheritance. And so, as a believer, we have a lot of things to be excited about. We have a lot of possessions. These possessions don't exist in this world. They don't don't exist in, in, in the things that we can see. And we should thank God for that. Because all of those things are fading away. Our possession is in something that is, it's real, and it's future, it's amazing. It is, it is beyond what we can describe, and it will never fade and never go away. And so because we have this possession, and because it's so awesome and so wonderful, we must ask now, in this world, what is the believer's purpose? And I think, again, I said Peter begins that with the theme of this paragraph. He begins in verse 3, blessed be God. And so what do you do now? What do you do with this information, this this belief? You bless God. You glorify God. You magnify God. You direct attention toward God. And I think when we we get down to verse 6, he says, wherein we greatly rejoice. I think that's part of it. I think that, that God is blessed. He's magnified. He's glorified when believers actually think about what they have in him and rejoice in it. Right? I mean, sometimes I think us... Thinking about heaven is, is almost a 
selfish thing to do. Do you know what I mean? I mean, so, I think sometimes I, I get this feeling that like, okay, just, just dwelling upon what's going to be and how awesome it's going to be is somehow negative. But listen, it's not. It is, an, it is a wonderful thing for you to rejoice in what God has freely given you, understanding that it's a completely a free gift of God. And so I think God is blessed, God is rejoiced when we rejoice in what we have in our living hope. There is a connection between verse 6 and verse 3. Our joy and our ability to bless God. And so where do we start? Well, I think we start tonight by rejoicing in our living hope. And you can do that without lifting a finger. I mean, you can spend time this evening in your bed rejoicing that God has saved you, rejoicing that your hope is secure, rejoicing that there's an inheritance there for you. And then I think it blesses God when we rejoice in our hope so much that it motivates us into action. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing if we, if we went from our beds tonight thinking about what God has done for us and how incredible it is that he has an eternal inheritance waiting for us to, okay, now what can I do? How can I, how can I live out my faith? I think it blesses God when we rejoice in our hope so much that we feel the need to share it with others. So all of this, all of what we're going to talk about, and, and all of what Peter's going to command in the, in the rest of the book, ultimately goes back to how can we bless God? How can we glorify God? I think this is a great place to start. Start by thinking about heaven and then seeing what those thoughts make happen in your life. Karl Marx complained that religion is the opiate of oppressed people. His idea was you take people who are suffering and who are in pain, and then you add religion, and it will help to dull their pain. It will dull their current situation. And the thing is, I mean, Marx didn't believe in an eternal inheritance, so he was trying to, to examine why people would believe in something that's eternal, and that would help them. Because what, what happened is, he saw that people could suffer, and if they had faith, they would be helped. That's what he saw, and so he explained it in his godless mind by saying, okay, well, it's just some kind of opiate, some dulling thing. Well, here Peter writes to people who are beginning to suffer, and Peter knows that, that this won't just dull their pain. In fact, it won't dull your pain. So if you think adding Christianity to your life is going to dull the pain you feel, that's not the case. Christianity does make us think and feel very clearly. And and we feel pain and loss very clearly. But what Peter knew is that this this hope that he had was sure, and it, it would not dull his pain, but in the midst of his pain, give him something to rejoice about. That in the midst of pain and suffering, he could say, but it's not always going to be like this. That someday there's something wonderful and eternal, and this is just temporary. And so, yes, I feel the pain, and it's difficult, and it hurts. But someday it's not going to be like this anymore. Someday it's going to be perfect. And so our thought of heaven is even greater in the midst of pain because we know what it's like when it's not heaven. You see? And so Marx was completely wrong. It's not an idea of dulling the pain. It's the idea of feeling the pain and having something so much greater to rejoice in. And that's what Peter gives us here. And that's what the gospel gives us. 
as believers. And so we are so foolish as Christians if we have the hope of eternal life and we don't spend any time thinking about it. And we don't spend any time allowing that truth to change how we feel and, and, and giving us something to rejoice in. For Peter, this is not an emotional plea. This is a reasoned intellectual choice. Listen, folks, Jesus is risen from the dead. And because he rose again, you will rise again. And because God is keeping your faith, it will endure to the end, and someday you will see your salvation come to fruition. And so because of that, you can rejoice in your suffering. Thomas More once wrote, Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. And he didn't say that earth has no sorrow because it has a lot. But it has no sorrow that, t- that heaven can't heal. Dave Crowder, um, I think he wrote the song. He took these, that, that line and he wrote kind of a, verses around it. And so he said, Come out of sadness from wherever you've been. Come brokenhearted, let rescue begin. Come find your mercy, O sinner, come kneel. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. There's hope for the hopeless and all those who've strayed. Come sit at the table, come taste the grace. There's rest for the weary, rest that endures. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. If you're a believer in Christ tonight, take a moment and think about what you have waiting for you. That's already there, that God is guarding, that he's keeping for you. And then let that thought change how you view everything else in your life. Let's pray.